Tego. I'm John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. On this episode, I want to talk about the court system, or more specifically, about using the court system as a remedy for our conflicts with the state and federal governments. Let me start by saying that there are no specific remedies in place inside the US or Canada for these colonial powers to be held accountable for their genocide, crimes against humanity, or any of the numerous violations of the rights of Native people. There is also no process for political resolutions to our differences. And while there's plenty of talk about tribal summits and consultations, there's no meaningful dialogue or system in place to adequately address these conflicts. In 2007, when the US and Canada voted against the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, we were told that one of the main concerns was that the current remedies for conflicts with us might be undermined by the UN Declaration. When specifically asked what these remedies were, they responded with the courts. The UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples calls itself the minimum standard for survival and dignity. But today, not even that standard is met. As Native people, we often hear lip service about consultations over issues impacting us or our lands, but those consultations rarely occur. And the standard called for in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is not consultation. It is free, prior, and informed consent. The U.S. and Canadian courts cannot rule on issues of sovereignty. They are limited to only their laws and their own constitutions. They certainly can dismiss a case because they lack jurisdiction, but that would be diminishing their authority, and no court wants to do that. And while some judges and juries may be sympathetic to the arguments in favor of Native sovereignty, no judge is willing to stick his or her neck out and dismiss a case or rule in favor of a Native nation, person, or business entity based solely on the arguments of sovereignty. So when we do win in their courts, it's often a shallow win because of a backdoor ruling. Famed civil rights attorney William Kunstler, who is most known for representing the Chicago 7, members of the American Indian Movement, and Asada Shakur, once represented me as well. I recall him telling me and those of us facing a federal trial that the key was to give the judge a way out. He said, make all your sovereignty arguments, but know that most judges will never rule on them. So make every argument you can. Give them a back door, a way out. In their courts, we are treated as one of them. And to them, we are completely subject to their laws. And while their courts can never actually pinpoint when and where they got their authority to rule over us, or more importantly, when we gave that authority to them, there have been centuries-long efforts to publicly refuse to acknowledge our distinction as a people and the distinction of our lands as independent nations. My guest this week is Jeff Rena, an attorney from Buffalo, New York. Jeff will speak with us about a recent case involving a fine of over a million dollars levied against a native wholesaler over the transportation of a native tobacco product from one native territory to another that was recently tossed out of court based on an illegal search and seizure after almost a decade-long legal battle. My guest is Jeff Rena, who is an attorney, and I'll let Jeff introduce himself. Jeff, first, thank you very much for joining me on the program. And uh, if you would, give me kind of a just a brief introduction on who you are and uh, what you do. 
partner, and thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, yes, I'm a senior partner at the law firm of Lipsitz Green Shemay Cambria. It's located in Buffalo. Um, I head up my firm's uh, commercial litigation department, and in that role, I have uh, represented a number of clients on Native American issues with respect to their businesses and, the, and their business operations. Well, and, and of course, part of the reason that that's such, such a necessity is it, it appears that, that Native commerce is more often than not under some sort of assault from either the state or the federal government, and not just in New York State, but but certainly many places. And part of that re- the reason that it's under assault is is because we don't completely conform <laughs> to to say the least to to state law um, and or or I should say we don't completely acknowledge um, that that state law applies to the things that we do on our territory and the things that we do um, in terms of native to native commerce. Correct. There's a, I guess the best way to put it would be, there is an undercurrent in federal case law that suggests that native to native uh, commercial transactions are to be encouraged. And that type of commerce is something that the federal government has an interest in promoting. But in practice, that doesn't really occur all that often in the decisions that are being handed out by the federal courts. It's much different on the state levels. The states take a much broader view of state authority and the ability to regulate native to native uh, commerce um, between either tribes themselves or between members of the tribes who have established business on the reservation. Well, and in particular, it doesn't happen on the state level. I mean, where we do on occasion, you know, especially when some of these higher profile cases, um, you know, get attention in the federal courts, we will get some legal dicta that would would suggest an acknowledgement about the distinction of native peoples, native territories, native commerce. But at the state level, there's almost a complete failure of the, especially in New York State, to recognize that we are distinct. That we that there are things that happen on our territory that that the state does not have say over. And you know, and the sale of tobacco is just one of those things. But I guess the first thing that that I want to mention is one of the, the flagship cases that always gets mentioned when it, when it comes to New York State taxing native uh, sale of tobacco is the Atia case. And, you know, and so the, the Atia brothers were a state-licensed wholesaler, but they were also a wholesaler that had a, had a federal Indian trader's license. And they argued when the state was trying to force all native, or all tobacco, I'm sorry, that came from state wholesalers to be stamped before they came to a native territory, because we had been purchasing purchasing tobacco products without a stamp from New York State wholesalers for many years, when they when they tried to change that, the Atia brothers sued the the New York State Department of Taxation and Finance and said, "We have a license from the federal government that supersedes the uh, this the state law," and they lost, and then they won, and then it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled that their federal Indian traders license did not supersede state law. And they cited a couple of other examples in Colville and Potawatomi and um, uh, another case called Mo, um, where the state or the, where the federal courts had upheld that the states could impose a minimum burden on, uh, on tribes to assist them in tax collection. And because that had been held up in, in federal court, this Supreme Court ruled against the Tia brothers, uh, saying, "Look, if if the tribes themselves could be held uh, to a minimum burden on tax collection, your your claim that your 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 federal Indian traders license supersedes uh, state law, you know, f- fails." So that was the ruling, right? <laughs> but in that ruling, there was language that they pulled from both Mo uh, Colville and Potawatomi that that brought out the very specific argument that while the state may have a right to try to pre-collect a tax on a product that we merely purchase off territory for sale on our territory to consumers that are off territory, that's completely different. And they, and they said that that stands on markedly different ground than um, taxing a product that Native people add value to, manufacture, distribute, market, you know, design, whatever. So they made it very clear that, so in other words, to, to simplify it, 
it's one thing for us to, to buy Marlboros off territory and, and sell them to, you know, John Q. White guy coming off the territory to buy it. Then that, that's different than us selling a native brand, a brand that native people have added value and have some, somehow have a vested in, interest in specifically to that product. And so that has been the underlying, you know, um, you know, federal law, essentially, based on, on being cited in, in multiple cases. Did I get any of that wrong? No, no, you didn't. Um, yeah, because, I mean, in a nutshell, what the Supreme Court was saying in the Atia case was that where the incident of the tax actually falls on the purchaser of the product, and in this case it would be the way the, the regulatory framework was being set up, um, if, you're a, if you're a New York State licensed wholesaler and you're selling, you know, stamped tobacco products to uh, a business on, let's say, this, the, the Seneca territory, the they have to, the, the business has to prepay the tax, but then would apply for a coupon for any sales that were made to Native Americans, right? And the court looked at that framework and said, well, the regulatory burden really doesn't fall on the business that's located on the reservation. Instead, it falls on the consumer who's buying it because they're going to end up paying the tax. And it's perfectly okay for a state to regulate its wholesalers in this manner. And that's kind of where that fell. But there is language suggesting in ATIA that's never really been sort of more as an offhanded comment. It's not really a holding where it's binding that, you know, when you're talking about transactions, as you said, between native Americans and native Americans, that the state, New York state's interest or any other state's interest is, is much less. And therefore there should be some non-interference where we get into the issues that we're facing today is that, you know, for example, the Seneca nation now licenses tobacco wholesalers. So they're not New York state licensed tobacco wholesalers. But they're trying to say that in the instance where you have, uh, you know, a tribal wholesaler who operates solely on territory and is selling cigarettes that are manufactured by Native American-run businesses, um, the state is trying to take the position that those transactions can also be taxed. But it raises that issue that, you know, has been cited in ATIA and has been mentioned in some other cases where you're interfering now with not a transaction where a New York state resident is walking in to a, a smoke shop on the reservation and buying cigarettes that were manufactured, like you said, by Marlboro. Or they could buy anywhere else. Exactly. Where they could buy them anywhere else, et cetera. Exactly. Now you're trying to go after the transaction where a New York state resident goes into a smoke shop and purchases a native American produced, manufactured and packaged product that's been sold pursuant to the laws of the Seneca Nation to a licensed wholesaler uh, on the nation who then turns around and sends, sells it to a Native American retailer. And now you're trying, to impose, you're trying to impose the same burden that you were trying to do on New York State licensed wholesalers, and that's where you know, I think there's a lot of overreach, but we just can't get the courts to, to fall down on that issue on that side of the, the decision and say, yeah, you're right. It's important to point out, though, that Native brands really cannot be taxed. And, and the reason is because they have been excluded from things like the Tobacco Settlement Act. I mean, there, there is really no vehicle for a native-produced tobacco product to ever even get a New York State stamp on it. So they've been excluded. So, and, and so the reality is, even if native people wanted to uh, you know, get a tax stamp affixed to a native brand, they couldn't do that. And, and, and of course, we wouldn't want that. But the other thing is, that is important to point out is that the brands that we're talking about are only available, they're exclusively available by native retailers. So, you know, again, we're, we are talking about a product that can't be purchased anywhere else, that when they are even in transit from one native territory to another territory, they're not showing up on the streets of New York City or, you know, or, you know, or, or any place else. These are going, you know, to be distributed to a native retailer on a native territory. And I, I think it's important that, you know, because I think New York state has the highest smuggling rate of any other state in the country. And, and that's partially, partially because they have the, the highest, you know, tax burden on tobacco products. So, so it, it, it's, you know, it's easy for somebody to buy tobacco from another state and bring it on onto the territory. I also think it's, it's worth noting that under New York state tax law, two cards or less can be um, brought into New York state. So even coming off of a native territory uh, into New York state without any tax liability, the, the, there is a limitation 
uh, according to tax law, that says two cards or less are exempt from New York State's uh, excise and and sales tax. So, And I think that's important that that people realize that. Correct. That is true. There is that exception. Now, so what happens is... You be, and as you rightly described <laughs> where we are with New York State, so you you have a you know New York State that is somewhat belligerent to acknowledge that there is any native distinction, at least officially. Unofficially they do, but officially they would suggest that that if a native wholesaler who's licensed by their nation is uh, transporting a product to another native territory, that they they must. Uh, abide by and they they must be licensed by New York State, which of course they couldn't be. I mean, they would literally be prohibited not only from being licensed by New York State, but they but, but the product that they're dealing with would would also be prohibited from ever receiving a tax stamp. There's there's a failure by New York State to acknowledge that there's any distinction from native commerce or native to native commerce uh, from from their own, and you know and and. And this could not be more highlighted more more distinctly than when I personally went to Albany and uh, and solicited from uh, a New York State senator, George, Senator George Maziars, uh, who, who represented Western New York, and uh, as a as a Republican, and New York State Senator Tim Kennedy, a Democrat from also from from Western New York, and because there was there was becoming a change in the, in the tax law, I said. Can you get clarification from the New York State Department of Taxation and Finance? Because we sure as hell can't. Can you get clarification on where they stand, where the tax department stands on native brands and native to native trade? And in their letter requesting clarification, and they wanted it in writing, they said, because it's our position that New York State law does not have authority over native to native trade or over native brands. So two New York State senators from both parties and this was during the the Cuomo administration, still I believe, and they so they had solicited this, um, uh, tried to getting a, to get an opinion out of the the commissioner from the Department of Taxation and Finance. And frankly, um, it's been many many years, and they never got an answer. And but what did happen? About a month after that letter came out of uh, Senator Maziarz and Kennedy to the tax commission, an interdepartment memo was released within the Department of Taxation and Finance. And we refer to that as the do not seize letter. Now, this was not a, a memo that was meant for our eyes. It was, it was distributed to taxing agents in the field. And basically, it, it clearly laid out the distinction between native brands and native wholesalers from the the happenstance that a uh, that an agent would come across a truckload of let's say Marlboros without a tax stamp on it, and I actually got got my hands on that memo from a reporter in New York City. But guys like um, your client Eric White carried that letter, that do not seize memo, um, on their truck along with the the Kennedy and Maziar's letter. Be in the event that uh, that there was a question on what they should do, because if if a taxing agent or New York State police should happen across a a, a vehicle that had um, unstamped native brands on it, they could clearly see, OK, well, this is the inter- interdepartment memo. So while the department had, had made this stance, they they still would not answer or, or as I say, promulgate their position on uh, on native to native trade or native brands. They would not make an official statement, even when two New York State senators requested so. And that, and, and you and I have discussed this because, I, and, and, and as a, in, in the interest of disclosure, Jeff, you actually had me come in, come in as an expert witness to testify um, for the driver in uh, in this in this one case uh, when he was facing you know a, a fine in excess of a million dollars, and we'll get into more specifics later. But um, and we we talked about things like the territory that they were delivering to, but the judge at that time gave me a lot of leeway to talk about everything from the Atia letter to the Maziar's letter, to the do not seize memo, uh, gave me a lot of latitude. And, uh, and, and I think that judge was, was somewhat influenced by that. Although as we, as we learn with each of these cases, 
regardless of whether we are right or not, that's not what uh, is going to win in these cases. These cases oftentimes turn on, and I use the, um, the advice that William Kunstler once gave us as, as Native people fighting for something. He says, make sure you always give them a back door. Give them a way to save face. So you're probably not going to win your case based on sovereignty or jurisdiction or, you know, or your, your rights as a Native person. You're probably going to win this thing because a court's going to be sympathetic to all of those things but not rule on that. They're going to consider, as, as, <laughs> as this one judge did here, that um, our remaining contentions have been <laughs> um, uh, regarded as academic. So they'll find a loophole. They'll, they'll find a technicality to throw a case out. And in the case of the driver, um, who you asked me to testify uh, in his trial, or his hearing, I should say, um, they they dismissed his case ba just based solely on what a common the common carrier law. Yeah, that basically he the the truck he was driving was a contract carrier, and under the tax law, there's an exception for a contract carrier. They're not subject to the penalty if if the product that they're shipping, in this case, you know, Native American brand cigarettes, um, are not bearing what they consider to be the appropriate tax stamp. So that was the that was how we won the driver's case. So, but again, um, I mean, to be clear, although you, we, we always make the argument that we have certain rights to do these things, uh, the courts are really hesitant to, to weigh in or to rule on what our rights may or may not be. Um, and so essentially when they dismiss it because of a common carrier argument, the, the question about whether we have the right to do native to native trade still never gets answered. That's correct. Correct. I mean, we make those arguments. We've made those arguments in every case that we've ever, you know, had to had to bring on behalf of either a, a, a retailer or a wholesaler on the reservation. Um, we've made the sovereignty arguments, but you know, when as as a lawyer, my job is not only to advance you know the sovereignty argument on my client's behalf, but it's to make every argument I possibly could come up with for a defense in this case to a, a penalty that was issued. So, you know, my job is to, to come up with as many viable defenses as I can and try to win on, you know, one or more of them. Um, but like you said, you know, these types of cases where you've got these sovereignty issues where a judge uh, is going to have to sort of stick their head out and say, yeah, uh, sovereignty trumps what New York State's trying to do in this instance. There is a reluctance to do that if they can win through, as you said, a backdoor argument. In the first case with the driver, that was the common carrier exception. Um, and in another case that we it, involving that same transaction, um, you know, it was a different backdoor. So it, it just seems, and that was declaring the entire search and seizure illegal. And then therefore there's no, no evidence of transportation. So therefore the whole case goes. goes well, away. let's, let's back that up a little bit. Let, um, describe um, what the transaction was just so, you know, for those who are listening here, uh, know what we're really talking about here. All right. So the driver of, so there was a, it was a licensed wholesale business on the Seneca Nation, duly licensed under the laws of the Seneca Nation of Indians. Uh, an order was placed for a, a number of cartons uh, of cases of cigarettes to be transferred from the Seneca Nation to the, and I'm going to mispronounce the name because I always do, the Gnanka Territory. Well, originally, but it was actually um, purchased in Aquasasne, right, by um, by. Um, Oyonkwe um, trading in Aquasasne, right? Isn't that where the... No, Oyonkwe trading put the order into the wholesaler on the Seneca Nation, and then it went from there to the Gnanka to the, to the retailer, right? So the driver was driving the truck down the interstate and missed a safety inspection point, and the police pulled him over and had him go back to the, the safety inspection point. A safety inspection was conducted on the vehicle, after the safety instruction uh, in, in investigation was concluded, um, they held the driver for a number of hours while they decided if they were going to try and search the vehicle. Uh, the vehicle was locked. The back of the vehicle was locked. The driver didn't have the key or couldn't locate the key and didn't give the, the police permission to open the back of the, the back of the truck. Nevertheless, uh, they ultimately decided they were going to go forward with that, so they cut the bolt, the, the lock and the chain, and opened it up. And what they saw were cases. 
And on the bill of lading and uh, other paperwork that the driver had given to the safety inspectors, it had said that they were cigarettes, um, but it didn't say if they were stamped or not. So they knew what was in the cartons. They just didn't know what they looked like. And so then they went in, they opened the box or, you know, the, the case of cigarettes. They opened, they went in and they opened up the box and they pulled out a pack. And then they determined, well, they're not stamped. Therefore, in their opinion, they were illegal. So they seized the cigarettes, never arrested the driver, uh, cited the driver for a few minor safety issues with respect to the vehicle, and then he was sent on his way. Um, and after that, what the state did, what the State Department of Taxation and Finance did, was it imposed fines or penalties against the manufacturer of the cigarettes, which was King Mountain. It was approximately $1.2 million in a fine. Against the driver for $1.2 million against the wholesaler for $1.2 million, and against the retailer who was supposed to receive the cigarettes. And we were successful in fighting that ultimately on behalf of both the driver and the wholesaler. Um, it took a lot of time, effort, and a considerable, considerable amount of money on my client's part to be able to defend and, and succeed on this case. Um, but we were able to get those penalties removed against the driver and the wholesaler. And then King Mountain itself, my understanding is, was also successful uh, on the common carrier exception in getting that penalty removed from it. I don't know if the retailer ever challenged it. I don't think they did, but that's kind of where it ended up. Yeah, A native brand tobacco, uh, of tobacco product, uh, was shipped from Seneca Territory to, to Mohawk Territory. Um, native driver, native wholesaler, native common carrier. Um, and for all intents and purposes, even the wholesaler at that point was, uh, was not necessarily considered the owner of that product. Um, so the common carrier argument worked for the driver, but, uh, but it, uh, it did not work for the, uh, the, the wholesaler and the, the individual who owned the wholesaler. Right. Now, and again, to be clear, the argument about an illegal search and seizure was made every back when it was just a revenue department hearing through the state trial and ultimately to the um, uh, to the, the state appeals court. So right. you made the same argument, but but again, depending on who the judge is, you don't know. There's no telling what ruling that that a judge is going to make. And in fact, the the same common carry argument that you uh, that you had uh, argued for the release uh, release of the driver's uh, penalty. When you tried to make that argument for the wholesaler, is it is it wrong for me to suggest that that the that the judge actually introduced arguments against that that the state hadn't introduced? That's correct. So the way these just procedurally how this works, right? So you get assessed a penalty, you file a petition objecting to the penalty, you ultimately get a hearing in front of an administrative law judge, an ALJ that works for the Department of Taxation and Finance. And then you put on a case, uh, an administrative hearing, and the ALJ will make a decision. And then if you don't like the ALJ's decision, you can appeal it to the tax tribunal, which is the next step in the process. And then if you don't like the decision that comes out of the tax tribunal, and this again, is still administrative. This isn't a court. It's a, it's a, a panel that's appointed and works for the Department of Taxation and Finance. But are these, so are, normally are these judges, uh, people who serve as a judge in other capacities? They serve as administrative law judges for, this, for, the, for the department, all right? But they still are, they work with the department primarily. So you obviously go in there with a little bit of skepticism. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But if you lose and you want to appeal it, then you take it to, you don't go to a trial level court, uh, like a New York State Supreme Court. That's our lowest level of courts in New York State. You go to the appellate court that sits above the Supreme Court, which in this case was in the third department of New York State, and you make your appeal directly there of the administrative of the tax tribunal's decision, which is what we did. But what was interesting is we have two separate cases that were conducted. We have the one against the driver, which went first, which is the one that you testified um, and was very helpful in terms of uh, getting that decision. Um, but in that case, the ALJ that was assigned to it said that the truck and the driver were acting as common carriers, and therefore there's an exception um, to liability under the tax law, and therefore the imposition of the penalty against the driver was improper and, and voided the penalty. We made that same argument in front of the, a different ALJ who heard the wholesaler's case, and if you look at the decision, 
he agreed that we were acting as a carrier of the cigarettes, at, but he rejected that we fell within the common carrier exception because, in his opinion, the transportation of the unstamped Native American brand cigarettes violated public health law section 1399-double-L, I believe, um, which requires that the recipient must be licensed or registered as an agent or dealer under Article 20 of the tax law, which was never that argument. The public health law argument was not argued by the Department of Taxation and Finance at the hearing or any of it in its post-hearing briefs. That was something that the judge sort of went out on a limb and came up with that argument to argue that we weren't lawfully transporting cigarettes, therefore we do not get the benefit of the common common carrier exception. And one of the arguments that we raised on appeal, which the court didn't opine on, but you know that argument was presented, was judges aren't supposed to do that. Judges are limited to the arguments and the replies they're put in by the by the attorneys. The courts are not supposed to go out and look for arguments that haven't been fully briefed, which is what this ALJ did. So that was particularly upsetting to us, and so we we challenged we challenged the decision on that basis as well. Um, at the uh, tax tribunal level, they agreed with the ALJ, and then we made that same argument to the third department. But the third department, again, in the wholesalers case kind of short-circuited all that by saying that the initial search and seizure was unlawful and therefore, you know, there's no penalty because there's no evidence of the unlawful transportation of cigarettes because that evidence is basically stricken. And if you don't have the cigarettes, you don't have a case. Speaking to to the uh, to my friend who is actually the wholesaler, he actually sponsors the show again in the interest of uh, disclosure. Um, one of the things that upset him was 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 just that that you actually are not arguing your case against the state's case. You've actually got a judge not sitting as an as a you know as blind justice as an equal arbiter of of these two arguments. He's actually, you're actually arguing against the judge himself. And, right. and that is problematic because you no longer have somebody who's sitting there uh, hearing the case and then making a ruling based on the, the merit of each argument. He's already prejudiced to, you know, to the extent that he's building his own case against you. I mean, and that is, I mean, that's a whole nother level of, of really absurdity if, if, when you really consider it. Yeah, and, and, and as a lawyer, you know, my partners and I, we, we were pretty incensed that that occurred because obviously we took pride in the arguments that we were making and in the reply to the opposition that was interposed by the Department of Taxation and Finance. And then we were effectively blindsided by this legal argument, which we were never given an opportunity to address. And so, you know, that was that was particularly problematic, and it, and it indicated to us that there might have been some bias on the part of the ALJ. Um, but we, you know, we have to keep going and moving forward. And that's why we ended up all the way at the third department. Yeah. You know, and, and, and look, you know, I, I still come back to what really ends up being the problem, which is, you know, I go back to the, to the Maziar's Kennedy letter. When you, when you cannot get the state to properly address any of these issues, and, and they asked a very simple question. I mean, they basically asked the New York State Department of Taxation and Finance, what is your what is your policy on native brands and uh, and native to native trade? And that refusal to answer, I mean, to me, I mean, as, and I'm not a lawyer, uh, but to me, the fact that the state would actually refuse to answer that question should somehow prejudice their ability to prosecute a violation of of state law when they have been presented with that question time and time again, and literally refuse, not just fail to answer it, but they refuse to answer that question. Yeah, I, well, you know, it's a function of the way governmental bodies work. Unless there's a regulation that's promulgated or there's a law that says this is how you're supposed to handle things, you know, an agency is reluctant to go on record as saying this is our policy. But even in this case, because we did raise at, I believe it was the driver's case, the, the issue of this, you know, statement that came out, this internal memoranda saying that, you know, it was the non-seizure letter, or whatever, however you phrased it. Um, the response to that was, well, that's just an internal policy and those policies change. 
and the, nobody should have relied on this anyway because it wasn't supposed to be given to anybody other than people within the department. So their, their point is we have administrative discretion to change our policies if we deem it, and we're not obligated to follow a policy that was promulgated, you know, a few years prior. Uh, we've determined that we're going to go some. We're going to do something else. So, but, but they never have to produce any information that that really uh, suggests that they actually did change policy, and that's that's where we we have a problem. It, it seems to me that anybody who is going to be held accountable to a law, you know, a regulation, or you know, or or, or whatever, some sort of legal restriction. They should have the opportunity to know that what they're that what they're being charged was was officially stated that that again that it was promulgated. I mean, how do you how are, is anybody supposed to know that they're committing an unlawful act if the if the very agencies who are suggesting they are unlawful won't come right out and say what the what the policy is? No, I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, you know, but New York State has this penchant for doing things in an opaque manner and not being clear with things because I think they think it gives them some wiggle room in terms of the more problematic cases that they bring. So, you know, the fact that there's not clarity is not surprising. Is it problematic? Yes. And it's for the same reasons you just mentioned, you know, a person doesn't know, isn't on notice of whether or not they're violating the law if they can't get a statement from the enforcement agency as to what they interpret the law to mean. So, you know, I would agree with you that in this particular instance, having that memo and relying upon that memo prejudiced my client's rights because apparently they decided at some point subsequent to that internal memo being circulated that they were going to start seizing these cigarettes. Well, and that, sub that subsequent de decision might have been made on this very transaction, and that's the problem, it, yeah, right? It could have been. It took, <laughs> yeah, it took them an awful long time to figure out what they were going to do. It was several hours. Uh, you know, I think it was in excess of three hours before – they figured out what they wanted to do, you know, and once they, once they broke open the truck, they had them drive over to the, I believe it was New York's uh, state police barracks, closest one, they offloaded the cigarettes and then let the driver go. So I think, yes, I think that somebody, they were on the phone talking to higher ups and I think a decision was made. Yeah. Let's seize them to try and use this as a test case. I, I don't have any proof of that, but that's my own opinion on it. So where, where it comes down to, and, uh, you know, and look, I, I have a history of confronting some of these issues with um, uh, with both the federal government and state government on on what what remedies do native people have to confront um, some of these some of these actions of the state or the federal government. And, you know, one of the things when there was a, the argument going on about the U.N. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. There was a, a debate, and this is during the Bush administration, that the reason that the United States would vote against that UN declaration was that they were afraid that international law would be changed. And more specifically, the remedy that the United States currently had been using to address conflicts with Native people. And during the Obama administration, this goes back to 2010, they, um, they had... Um, enlisted the, the State Department to host a series of consultations with Native peoples, including uh, leadership and NGOs, to re-examine what the United States position would be on the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And I went to that. I was in Washington, and I went to, I listened in on the one that had the, the so-called leadership, and then uh, the one that um, allowed the rest of us, the NGOs, as we were called, um, to participate, I was a part of that as well. And they kept referring to, again, this, um, this upsetting the current remedy. So finally, I, I, I got a chance to ask a, qu a few questions. And I said, so what exactly is this remedy that you keep talking about? And they said, well, our court system. And, and I said, so you're going to try to tell me that your courts, your judges enforcing your laws are the remedy for us to deal with conflicts over your laws in, in, in your system? And they said, yes. And <laughs> so my point to you and for having you come join me today is, is to make very clear that the court system is not a place to, to deal. Uh, it is not a remedy. It, it is not any kind of, it's not an administrative remedy. It's not a judicial remedy to address native issues. Because at the end of the day, 
the native arguments weren't ever what what gets considered in this thing. You have to find, you actually have to find a place. Again, in in the words of somebody like Bill Kunstler, you've got to find a place that that these judges can slip through to, because if we do win a level of sympathy from a judge or a panel of judges, they're still not going to rule on the native issues. They're going to they're going to find the common carrier argument. They're going to find the illegal illegal search and seizure argument. So it is it is by no means a a any kind of remedy for us to deal with the conflicts that we have with the with the state or the federal government. Yeah, well, I agree. You know, but we're limited in terms of what recourse we have, right? Um, you, you can either petition the government to enforce laws. You can either and or you can go to the courts, right? And that those are the as a New York State attorney, those are the only remedies avenues that are available to me. Um, and I agree with you though the the remedies themselves or the avenue of remedies are ones that have shown repeatedly that the 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 heavier issue of what exactly the rights of a sovereign people are vis-a-vis the state of New York are oftentimes just left undecided because they find a more convenient way to give the petitioner, the, you know, the Native American who's involved in the case or defendant, if depending on who, what, you know, what's going on. But the Native American arguments that are being raised on behalf of that particular person, they tend to, while they're there, and you're, they may be sympathetic to them, I agree with you, if there's another way, an alternative way to grant the relief, that's the way they're going to go. They don't want to take on the heavy issue of, you know, Am I going to tell New York State it can't interfere with this type of transaction because this is a sovereign transaction? This is a transaction between sovereign peoples that the state has no interest uh, in interfering with, and they just don't. They have a reluctance to do that. Even when, and and I I agree that when we talked about that uh, that piece from Atia that talked about um, the state standing on different ground when they're enforcing their tax law to their end user, you know, by imposing the tax on the New York state wholesaler or having the New York state wholesaler, that that's different than trying to tax us on an activity we, we specifically are involved in. Um, but you know, that, that argument that was presented or that, or that language that was presented in Atia has been presented in, in several other cases involving specifically tobacco and taxation. So it wouldn't have been a stretch for a judge to say, "Yes, what you're going after here, um, you know, there, there, there is some legal uh, legal language. There is some legal dicta that addresses it." So they, you know, so that reluctancy really puts us back to what, what essentially what I said that that the courts fail to be a remedy for us to address specifically our issues of sovereignty or native rights. We only can make those arguments. With, alongside, you know, some other um, argument where they where they fail to proper, or, you know, properly uh, enforce, a, you know, or use a New York State law, for, for instance. So, so we don't have any remedy. And and even today, with the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples widely endorsed, at least from an aspirational standpoint, there is no, there's still no other remedy. We don't really have even the opportunity to 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 really petition law um law enforcement or um or taxing authorities or politicians look when you get new york two new york state senators asking a simple question on this specific issue and they can't get an answer i mean if, man, if they can't if, if if two white guys elected in the office can't get a, an answer what's the chances of a native person uh, petitioning you know the taxation department or or the governor or anybody else yeah no i agree i agree so um I, yeah, I don't know, you know, there is no easy answer to say, you know, where do we get these issues heard? I mean, the only place they can be heard where it would make any difference would be the courts. And like we discussed, the, the courts are reluctant to come down on, you know, the side of sovereignty. So we're we're kind of stuck in a catch-22. Yeah, and, and I do agree, though. I, I think making those arguments can sometimes, you know, at least skew a judge or a panel of judges to look for that other way out, but that's still not the same. So what ends up happening is, is the guy who's facing the fine might come out of this thing, not having to pay the fine, but we, as a people, we, we never win. We, we never win these bigger arguments. And, and of course, 
you know, oftentimes uh, we are in a situation where we have to, you know, you know, cut our losses. I mean, in this situation, didn't your client have to put up the full value of the fine in advance just to even make the argument? Yes. Yes. So that's a quirk in tax law that happens. So if you're assessed a penalty or you, you are audited and you're, and you're told you have to pay more in taxes and with fines and interest and everything else, in order to get your case heard, uh, you actually have to pay it or deposit that money uh, with the department in advance of making the arguments that they, you shouldn't have to pay the money so that when you win, you have to ask for the money back. And it's that's the way it's set up for, I mean, that applies to everybody that ever wants to challenge in courts these these actions by the Department of Taxation and Finance, whether it's a penalty imposed in, in this particular instance or it's a tax you know, additional taxes you say you're, you're, you owe, but you don't want to, you don't really don't think you owe them and you want to challenge that determination. So you got to pay it into the court you know, or pay it into the department and then they'll issue a refund once you win. So, uh, so much for that innocent to a proven guilty thing, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> In fact, they're, they're so concerned about getting paid that they make you pay up front. Um, so you have no other, you know, you can't lose and then, then claim you don't have the resources to, uh, to pay it. They, they make you pay it up front. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that, that, that is that, that and and again, that's to, to say any of this stuff. I want to be clear. It's not like they are violating or, or much of this is is the policy they have towards anybody. The problem is there is a distinction, and you know, not only do we get a couple of state senators acknowledging that distinction. But we do get that that acknowledgement in some of these court cases. But at the end of the day, when it comes down to the state, at the state level, they know that that you know, look, they've got you know legions of state troopers, they've got taxing um, you know agents, they've got you know a whole system built up that that really is all geared towards us not ever really seeing justice. And you know, the fact that you had to go through these administrative uh, hearings, you know a series of those, you know, and I, I suspect that there's probably not a whole lot of recourse for your client to not only get the, um, uh, let's not forget, there's probably $150,000 worth of tobacco that, um, that he was, you know, basically taken from illegally. Correct. Well, in our case, we had argued as part of the common carrier exception that title to the cigarettes had passed to the buyer, we were just we were just transporting them, but somebody is out those cigarettes. Let's put it that way. Right. And and is there any recourse for your client to uh, you know to try to get recover any of the? I'm I'm sure there must have been a. And this isn't a slide on you, but you guys didn't don't work cheap. I mean, I know these are difficult cases to try, and you guys have to commit an awful lot of your resources as uh, you know as as lawyers. So does he have any opportunity for relief from the legal expenses? We're looking into that right now. Um, I, with respect to the administrative hearings and things, uh, like for example, the, the case involving the driver, we were able to get some of the attorney's fees back from the state. We were able to make that application. What we're looking at now is whether or not, because we are we had to appeal all the way up to the third department, whether or not we can make the same type of arguments under the provisions of the uh, of the Department of Taxation and Finance to make a fee application, we think that we can, and then you know that there'll be a determination as to how much we're paid, and we'll go from there. It's not, it's not it's a little quirky because they have an established rate that you can get. So even though you know, and the rate is a lot lower than what the rates are being charged by attorneys on average, including us. So you're not going to get it all back, but you might get some of it back. Let's put it that way. Well, and, and part of the reason I wanted you to join me here is to not only talk about, you know, a, a specific case that kind of highlights so much of what we as Native people face, but, you know, there's also this argument oftentimes about whether we can pursue some sort of litigation or, um, you know, or, or a lawsuit or against, you know, the state or the federal government, or even, frankly, you know, a non-native, you know, org organization, I mean, a, a corporation or non-native non individual, it, you know, there is, there's such a color about how law is looked at when it, when it involves native people, native territories. I mean, one, an example that I'll bring up is, 
you know, in the early years, you know, there's a lot of people who assume that lot of, lots of native land was, um, was just ceded to the state. But much of the, the lands that were lost by native people, and this was really very true in Seneca territory, had to do with leases. And, you know, so, the, so Seneca's individually would enter into leases for property um, to non-native uh, lessees for, you know, sometimes they would be 99-year leases. And in, and in some extreme cases, they were 999-year leases, which is really kind of absurd. And the, prob and the problem with that is we, you know, for many, many years, for like 150 years, native people had no legal recourse. We couldn't sue a, a defaulted lease. We couldn't sue that lessee. Um, so there was no recourse in the court systems. So even for us to seek some sort of remedy, you know, for being wronged by an individual or a corporation or by the state, um, we, we had no ability to do that. And, and so this was the case for, for many, many years. Many, much of the lands that were lost were lost through uh, because people, you know, just said that their lease was like a sale. And, and courts and lawmakers, you know, upheld that. And, and we end up in situations, you know, and I'm, one of the things that, that, that frustrates me when we talk about land and land use, there was a circumstance where the Oneidas were, were purchasing land, uh, the Oneida Nation was purchasing land in their ancestral um, claim area, a claim area that the court, the Supreme Court had ruled that the Oneidas had the right to sue for fair title. You know, but they had still not been granted any land back. So they purchased some of that land. And that case went all the way to the Supreme Court because the city of Sherrill was arguing that um, they couldn't re reacquire their lost lands, regardless of how they were lost. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was, you know, considered the liberal darling of the court at that time, she actually cited, and, and again, <laughs> I have to bring this up, she's Jewish. And yet she cited the doctrine of Christian discovery in footnote number one of that argument that basically said once, that our, once we were discovered that the title to our land became vested in the sovereign, meaning Europe, you know, the European nation, and then you know the United States and the individual states. They never describe how that happens. So they make these assumptions in law. And, and among those assumptions comes right down to something like the case you just tried, that the state assumes it has jurisdiction when they really don't have a place they can ever cite to say, well, this is when Native people yielded our jurisdiction, yielded our sovereignty. We transferred our sovereignty to New York State. Look, I know that they pass laws. They pass Public Law 280 and U.S. 232 and 233, but they don't ever have a place where they can say that we, we had become governed by at the consent of the governed. I mean, we never consented to this stuff. So the assumptions that get made, and, and that's really the way New York State is operating, they're operating under the assumption that they can inflict and, and impose New York State law on our people, on our territory, or in any of this native to native trade. And I, and I, so I, I know I just got on my soapbox, but, but the, the part of the reason is, is to understand historically how far back this goes. Yeah, well, I agree with you. I mean, it, it does. It goes all the way back. And, you know, there's a it's a very imperialist sort of dogma that's been established that says that, you know, the sovereign is the owner of, of the land. But I agree with you, that especially in the case of the Seneca Nation, there was never any seeding of, uh, of sovereignty by the Seneca Nation. The Seneca Nation was a party to treaties and the and treated back then as a recognized nation but those treaties you know at some point were disregarded and the role changed to the federal government being you know the, the it was a very paternalistic type of situation where the, the the federal government took on the role of ensuring that you know the tribes were not being uh, abused by the states but at the same time you know they were affording the states more rights to do things on reservation territory and it, it it's really a miscarriage of justice the way this is all sort of played out in American history. Um, I agree with you. I, I, I'm a firm believer that the Seneca Nation is a sovereign nation, and it has been. And it hasn't been conquered. It hasn't been displaced. It has been displaced from its traditional territories to where it is now. But you know, it has that territory that it lives on, that it exists on, is has always been Seneca territory. It's important to acknowledge that 
that language in, in treaties that we didn't write, that they wrote, that they, they made those full acknowledgments. They said that land is yours and we will never claim the same, nor will we ever interfere in your free use and enjoyment of your land. So this is, um, and there's been, never been, again, we talk about the, a memo you know, that, that never officially gets changed. That language, there, there's no place in American history where New York State or the United States can say, okay, that land was Seneca land, but now we're going to count it. Now we're, now we're going to consider it U.S. soil. Now we're going to consider it, uh, you know, part of New York State. So, I mean, it leaves, it leaves us in a really tough spot because, you know, as we are trying to, and, and look, there's no question that today we um, can, we essentially can, you know, can assert ourselves with a little bit more force than we did, say, 30 years ago, 60 years ago, you know, 100 years ago. Um, we understand our, um, what we consider our legal rights. The problem is we can't get a court to, to oftentimes weigh in on what those legal rights should be. We, we are simply relegated to finding ways that the courts can kind of save face and, and find a way out. <laughs> correct, correct. There's that. And there also is this idea of developing the economic strength of, in this particular case, the Seneca Nation, because, you know, if anything works in America or anything talks in America, money talks, right? So, uh, you know, with the advent of the casinos, with the advent of some of the other stuff that the that the nation has gotten involved in to develop its economy and in the spinoff that it creates in the Western New York area, it gives the nation more political clout to maybe, you know, claw back some of the things that were taken from it in terms of the way the state views its sovereignty. So there's a political component to that too, that I think is enhanced the more the Seneca nation develops its own economy. And in turn, that economy has some spillover effects um, off territory so that there is an economic impact that New York state has to recognize and is forced to deal with the Seneca nation more as a, a partner in development as opposed to a ward of the state, which is the, definitely the position that they've sort of been in that, you know, Seneca nation exists within the borders of New York state and therefore you're subject to New York state regulation. But, you know, to the extent that you develop economic power, you can use that as political leverage to gain more rights. We also talk about the, the, the court of public opinion, because with that economic power, we, we also, you know, look, we have patronage. We have patronage from from the the non-native public, whether it's for casinos and, and gaming or for sale of gas and tobacco. And, you know, when we very we started this conversation, you know, one of the things I think is clear that the general perception of the public is that we have the right to do certain things that don't get done in the rest of the state. I mean, we we can produce tobacco products. We can sell tobacco products. We can sell fuel, uh, motor fuel without New York state stamps or New York state tax on it. We, you know, we can do gaming that the state perhaps has not been able to do. Of course, that's that's changed somewhat. But so there's there's that distinction is by by and large acknowledged by you know frankly even by politicians the problem is once people get into positions of authority they realize that they can they can wield power that they may not really have because the system and this is where we get into this idea of you know systemic racism there's there's a level of perception that these people of power have that the system's going to work for them and and not necessarily work for us and that's kind of where we are where we're at sure Sure. Uh, you know, and it's, it is, it's a, it's a struggle for recognition and it's a struggle to, you know, find an avenue or avenues available where you can successfully assert the sovereignty rights that the Seneca nation and its people possess. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot of history behind why New York state acts the way it does, but it does act like traditional imperialist powers um, when it comes to its, its dealings with Native Americans, that, you know, it's the, it's the power and the nations are not as powerful, so therefore we can impose our will on them. And that's the unfortunate situation that we find ourselves in, but we'll keep making the arguments and maybe one day we'll get a court to, to opine on them. At some point beyond might makes right. Um, has to, you know, has to prevail. And, and that's why we, you know, that's why we continue to push uh, what we can push on our territories. And, 
And we we do ultimately, you know, have to rely on you know the arguments that uh, that will prevail in court. And we hope that even if the, some of these judges have to find a, a you know a few loopholes to slip through to to not impose these fines or these you know some of the sometimes criminal charges against us, um, at some point you know there there will be um, the political will to take a stronger stand because you mentioned earlier, look. We argue that much of what we face is not an issue that should be litigated, that it, that these there should be political solutions to the issues that we have. But in the absence of any mechanisms, um, you know, whether associated with the U.N. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples or in just simple, you know, diplomacy between native peoples and the state, native peoples and the federal government. Look, there's, there's oftentimes overtures made. Oh, yeah, we're going to have a summit. We're going to have this. We're going to have that. But as far as meaningful change and, and any kind of full acknowledgement, we've got all kinds of language from treaties and, uh, and, and past agreements that, that, that bolster our argument. But you're right. This, this oftentimes comes down to might makes right. And, and that's, what, that's where we, we find ourselves all too often when it comes to you know, both the state and the federal governments. Yeah, and, it all, and again, and I, and I hate to sound crass, but it also comes down to money. Right. Because the state is aiming towards cigarette sales because the state believes that it's resulting in a deprivation of tax revenues because a lot of New York state residents are buying these unstamped cigarettes, native cigarettes, and therefore eluding New York state's taxing scheme. So therefore, that's the financial component that drives the engine. So, again, we get back to the idea of, well, if you develop the, the, the economy of the Seneca Nation to a degree where there's more benefit in, you know, looking away from the state of New York, you know, pulling back and not enforcing or trying to enforce transactions involving Native American cigarettes because there's so much more economic benefit spilling off to New York State residents because the Seneca Nation is doing its doing its a bang up job in developing its economy and not only are New York State residents participating in that economy but they're they're working for those companies and there's all this spinoff then the calculus starts to change. You know what I mean? And yeah. so you can, it's a lever, money talks. And well, and, 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 but, but we do have to acknowledge that some of that's a bit of a red herring because when we talk about how much revenue New York State is losing um, to uh, cigarettes coming in from other states, for instance, if you really did the math, you would find the, the revenue that the state claims they're not collecting from our sales is really kind of it's it, it's pale by comparison when you when you look at uh, places like New York City that have you know even city taxes on top of the the sales and excise taxes uh, at the state and federal level. So it's um, oh I mean, no, when, I agree. when you do the, the calculus, I'm sorry, the number they always float is, is way in excess of what the actual number is. Uh, yeah, you have, you have to look take a great take it with a grain of salt. Anytime the state says this is how much our taxes are being avoided, you just can't go with that number. I agree with you. Well, Jeff, I want to thank you so much for uh, you know for joining me here and, and having this conversation. I don't think our people realize our native people and certainly the non-native people realize that that this idea of uh, of the, the courts being the arbiters of justice, they really fall pretty short on that when it comes, especially when it comes to dealing with native issues specifically. And uh, and I think you know what you what you offered here in this program has really illuminated that a lot. So I, I, I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure being on. Thank you. Thank you for checking out the show. As always, if you like what you hear, you can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Let's Talk Native. You can follow the show on Twitter at Let's Talk Native. You can also follow us on Instagram at Let's Talk Native TV. You can also join our Facebook group page. I am John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. Yahweh. And that's the terrible myth of organized society, that everything that's done through the established system is legal. And that word has a powerful psychological impact. It makes people believe that there is an order to life and an order 
to assist him. And that a person that goes through this order and is convicted has gotten all that is due him. And therefore, society can turn its conscience off and look to other things and other times. And that's the terrible thing about these past trials, is that they have this aura of legitimacy, this aura of legality, because all tyrants learn that it is far better to do this thing through some semblance of legality than to do it without that pretense.